Lord, um, there is so much in James. As we open this up, may we not get overwhelmed by everything that's here. But Lord, instead, may we hear what you want us to work on. Holy Spirit, come. Teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. So at, uh, it's kind of one of those times when every now and then I, I'm not totally sure how to start. And so I want to start by reading a couple of things to you and, and then we'll, we'll talk. Um, one was just this cute thing that Debbie Alley sent out to all the leaders. It says this, you're holding a cup of coffee when someone comes along and bumps into you or shakes your arm, making you spill your coffee everywhere. Why did you spill the coffee? Well, because somebody bumped into me, of course. Wrong answer. You spilled the coffee because there was coffee in your cup. Had there been tea in your cup, you would have spilled tea. Whatever is inside the cup is what will spill out. Therefore, when life comes along and shakes you, which will happen? Whatever is inside of you will come out. Oh, it's easy to fake it until you get rattled. So we have to ask ourselves, what is in my cup? When life gets tough, what spills over? Joy, gratefulness, peace, humility, or anger, bitterness, harsh words, and reactions? You choose. Today, let's work towards filling our cups with gratitude, forgiveness, joy, words of affirmation and kindness, gentleness, love, and love of others. Okay. Um, what's in your cup? In a sense, that is what James is asking us. Okay. He's putting a mirror up in front of us. See? Um, and he's saying, what's really inside? He says, all too often you profess one thing. But what you possess is something entirely different. You profess Christ. But in reality, you possess the world. See? And when you get bumped, what comes out is not Christ, but the world. Unfortunately, there's a problem with the world. It doesn't lead to anything. One of my books writes this. um, The United Nations Complex, this is actually quoting um, Charles Coulson, says, the United Nations Complex sits on 16 acres of New York City's choicest real estate, hovering on the East River and Manhattan, bordering the East River and Manhattan, The lean, immense secretariat building rises into the sky, the sun reflecting off its window walls. Bright flags of the nations of the world fly in the breezes off the river. The most prominent is the blue and white UN flag. It's two white reeds of olive branches surrounding the world. 
A visitor is immediately struck by the grandeur of the building, stirred by the sight of dignitaries stepping out of their black limousines to cross the massive plaza. He realizes that if this place represents the power of the world, one might well want to see the place of worship where the nations bow before the one under whose rule, under whose rule they govern. The information personnel are bemused. The chapel? We don't have a chapel. If there is one, I, I believe it's across the street. The visitor darts across the thoroughfare, dodging New York taxis, and successfully arrives at the opposite building's security clearance desk. Well, there, there's a chapel here, responds the officer, but it was... It's not associated with the UN. He thumbs to a directory. Oh, I see, all right. Here it is. It's across the street. Tell them you're looking for the meditation room. Again, the visitor dashes across the pavement. An attendant tells him the room is not open to the public. It's a non-essential area. And there's been a personnel cutback. But a security guard will escort the visitor through the long, crowded hallways and swinging glass doors. Again, there in the pervasive sense of weighty um, matters being discussed. Again, there is a pervasive sense of weighty matters being discussed in the noble pursuit of world peace. The guide pauses at an unmasked door. He unlocks it and generally pushes it open. The small room is devoid of people or decoration. The walls are stark white. There are no windows. A few wicker stools around a large square rock at the center of the room. There is a, around. It was quiet, but there's no altar, rug, vase, candle, or symbol of any type of religious worship. Lights in the ceiling create bright spots of illumination on the front wall. One focuses on a piece of modern art, steel squares and ovals. Beyond the abstract shape, there is nothing in those bright, cliche, bright circles of light. They're fo- focused on a void, and it is in that void that the visitor suddenly sees the soul of the brave new world. In a sense, the part of this passage that probably jumped out me more than any other's was that part that talks about making plans. The part that says, we say, well, tomorrow I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll do this. And we forget that really our lives are like vapor. In a culture where we want to tell our children early on that you're of significance, that you can do anything you put your mind to, that you're in control, that it's all about you. We forget that it isn't all about us. We forget who we are. James calls these readers that he's talking to adulterous people. 
Um, the wording in Greek there is actually in the feminine. Okay? You are an adulterous wife. See? Rather than staying in the arms of your husband, we're going out and seeking other lovers to provide for us. And the reality is that we're exchanging the best for something of no substance. And James is saying, come back to God. Quit being a friend with the world because the world is but vapor. The world is but a void. Um, we live in a, um, I'm going to try and say this really carefully. Um, I have a, a friend of mine who a couple of years ago, um, two years ago, almost exactly, upon hearing election results, threw up her hands and basically said, that's it, we're headed to war. Here's the problem with that comment. And, and, and let me go back one second. And ever since then, she lives with a sense of fear and angst. Here's the problem with that comment. That almost puts too much power in any individual or any nation or any set of circumstances. What James is wanting to say to us over and over and over again is that the sinner of this world is not any one individual, is not myself, is not my decisions. At the center of this world is the creator God of the universe. And he is in ultimate control. Okay? Now that doesn't mean that we might not have a war tomorrow. Okay. But it does mean that rather than being worried about tomorrow, I need to put my trust in the one who is in control of tomorrow. See? But we have a tendency in our society to say that instead of looking in a, in a sense at the fact that I even wake up tomorrow as a gift from God. To basically say, if I don't wake up tomorrow, I somehow got gypped. Is that not the way we talk? God, why did you let this happen to me? God, why is this? God, this should have happened. God, I mean, I remember when, you know, We talk in terms that, that kind of say, you know, if somebody doesn't 
if, if a child dies at 16, God has somehow gypped them or gypped us of life. What is that saying about what we think life is ultimately about? See, we basically have this view that life is about this world. And so we make friends with this world. We take on the world's values. We take on the world's perspectives. We take on the world's way of seeing things. We work hard. We think everything depends upon us. And when things don't go our way, we blame God. Okay. When Jesus called his disciples, do you remember what he called them to? Anybody know? Jesus said, if you want to follow me, what do you need to do? Take up a cross? Really? Take up a cross? See? And, and in a sense, when I read the New Testament, when I read Paul, when I look at the disciples, okay? Do you know how many disciples made it into their 90s? Okay? Every disciple other than John most likely died a martyr's death. So if I came to you today and said, okay, guys, here it is. Anybody want to follow me, all right, um, and follow Jesus, what this is going to mean is that I guarantee you, before you reach 80 years old, you're going to die a martyr's death. How many of you would sign up? Okay. I'm reading a book right now. Um, I don't agree with everything in it, but I'm reading a book right now called by Francis Chan called Letters to the Church. And one of his chapters is entitled Crucified. And in that chapter, he talks about the fact that... So I get this. He says this. Um, the call to follow Jesus was a call to die. Nowadays, we want to talk about the good part, the grace and the blessings. Becoming a Christian is a complete and total surrender of your own desire and flesh to the higher purpose of serving God's glory. The call to follow Christ is to call to joyfully endure suffering in this life for the promise of eternal blessings in the next. A believer from a house church in Iran who can't be named for obvious reason, explain that the people who want to join the church have to sign a written statement agreeing to lose their property, be thrown in jail, and be, more, and be martyred for their death. Many Christians are arrested in Iran and either executed or imprisoned for years. Fellowship looks a lot different when the church consists of those who have a biblical understanding of Christ, this type of biblical understanding of Christianity. But interestingly, some research shows that Iran has the fastest growing evangelical population in the world. Uh, 
I remember speaking to a man who leads a whole network of churches in China. He told me about how there was a period when there was a little, when there was a little more religious freedom. He decided to test the waters and build a church above ground just to see how well it would go. His church grew to a couple thousand people. Then the government went in and sure enough shut it down and hauled him and other pastors away. In Sinite, he told me he was actually really grateful because it brought them back to their DNA again. He told me that they had started to lose it with the change of structure. By having a large service, people began coming just to listen to the sermon. Once they grew accustomed to merely sitting and listening, he had a hard time stirring people to action. He explained further that they had started out with five pillars. The first one was based on a deep commitment to prayer. The second, a deep commitment to the word of God. The third, being committed to sharing the gospel. The fourth was a regular expectation of miracles. And the fifth was embracing suffering for the glory of Christ. Paul embraced suffering because he realized that this life wasn't the end. He embraced suffering because his life was completely sold out to Christ and trusting Jesus. He let go of everything else just for the sake of knowing Christ. And we can't give up two minutes a day in silence. At least I can't. I'm right where Lynn is. See. God says keep the Sabbath. We talked a while ago that we said that the Ten Commandments, the law, actually shows us the character of God. Okay? The Ten Commandments tell us not to lie because God is not a liar. God is a truth teller. See? And so when we put ourselves under the law rather than judging the law, see, when we judge the law, we say, I know better than God. And God goes, now, you know what? Really, in reality, you know, I'm the one who invented the system in the first place, so you're basically telling me that you know more than the person who invented the system. You know? And here are the laws that make the system work. And they're there because... They reflect who I am. I'm a truth teller, not a liar. Okay? I'm in control. You can rest in me. So keep the Sabbath. You know? The Sabbath is actually a gift. I don't know how you are. I think about taking Sunday and not doing anything as, you know, and God's going, it's a gift. Enjoy it. Enjoy being with one another. Throw a party. See? Um, most of the festivals in the Old Testament and the sacrifices in the Old Testament, it's, it's really kind of funny. There's, there's a passage that talks about putting aside, you know, your tithe and, and the best of your, of your flock and then going up to the festival and spending it all on a party. You know, he basically says, put aside your tithe and then Go use it and celebrate me with each other. Okay? When was the last time you thought about tithing as a celebration? Okay? Right? So, you know, God's going, rather than judging the law, try and understand how the law is a reflection of me 
and how it's a reflection of how we are to live as kingdom people rather than as world people. But as a world person, I look at the law and say, wait a minute, I'm not too sure that works for me. And God goes, it doesn't work for you because you're trying to make it about you. I mean, listen to people when they talk about not keeping the law. When they basically say, I'm not going to do something that scripture says I shouldn't do, it generally has to do with the fact that my desires, what I think will make me happy, is different than what God says will make me happy. And God says in reality, it won't make you happy. In reality, it will leave a void in your life. See? In reality, you will be like the UN trying to manage the world, but without anything of substance behind it. Now, Charles Colson wrote that a number of years ago. One of the biggest problems that we have with the UN is not that we all come to the table and talk. My guess is that one of the biggest problems with the UN is that we all come to the table and talk, but thinking of ourselves first and foremost. See, it's all about me. It's all about my wants, my desires, what's good for me. And so that's why you have, in a sense, Timothy ending chapter 18 saying, be a peacemaker, work for peace. And then he says, beginning chapter 4, why don't you have peace? What causes quarrels? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have, so you kill, you covet. You cannot get what you want, and so you quarrel and fight. Because I've made me the center of everything, rather than trusting God to be the center and give me everything. Then I have to go out and latch on and hold on and get for myself. And when that happens... There are quarrels and fights and schisms. See? And what's Jesus' answer to that? Die to yourself. Follow me. Trust me. Because I am the one who is the giver of all good gifts. And what James is saying to these people in the church is, you don't believe it. You're double-minded. You don't have, he says, because you don't ask God. Okay. I don't take that two minutes to even sit with him, to ask him. And when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask for the wrong motives, that you might spend it on your own pleasures. I think... One of the dynamics is we, we all think 
in one sense, we're praying with the right motives when I pray a friend's prayer request. And in a sense, we are. But in a sense, also, if somebody asks me to pray in a particular way and I pray for them in that way, I'm praying for what they think is best for them. See, what I really need to hear in a prayer request is the issue that is at hand and take it to God and ask him to work for what is best for his kingdom, which is what is best for them. You're an adulterous people. Rather than resting in the arms of your lover, the one who died for you, you go after friendship with the world. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for his spirit that he has caused to dwell within you? That verse is the one verse in James that nobody quite gets how to take apart. Okay? But nobody really disagrees with a couple of things. Number one, it says this is what scripture says and nobody can find it quoted, but really he's kind of taking the totality of scripture. Okay? Scripture tells us over and over and over again that God is jealous for a relationship with us. Okay? He's jealous for us to rest in him. He is jealous for us to trust him to give us what we need to provide for us. And because of that loving jealousy, he continues to give us grace upon grace upon grace, even when we don't deserve it, even when we're going off in a wrong direction, just in hopes that we will come back to him, that we would resist the devil and draw near to him. There's a slide in there about resisting the devil, isn't there, someplace? Um, I can't remember which one it is. I think it's called Tactics of Warfare. Okay. Um, let's go to Tactics of Warfare. Um, you know, basically, um, Satan is constantly talking to us, okay? Constantly putting ideas into our head. Um, like... Um, causes us to doubt God's grace. Um, he causes us to believe lies about God's love and about forgiveness. Um, he, oh, okay, that, this is reversed. It? So these, these are ways to get past it. Um, the one I'm looking for, I can't see. Satan is constantly wants us to believe that we're self-sufficient, wants us to believe that we're in the center 
And, and what God says is instead of listening to Satan's lie about how important we are and how it's all about us, we need to draw near to God. We need to wash our hands outwardly of the things we do wrong and to purify our hearts inwardly of our attitude that says it's about us. And we need to repent. And those words of grieving and mourning and wailing and changing our joy to doom show the significance of our understanding of how we've messed up when we try to do it ourselves. But James says when we humble ourselves, then he'll lift us up. And then he goes on and he talks about not slandering one another, which we somewhat talked about last week. But anyone who speaks against his brother or sister judges them and speaks against the law and judges it. That law being loving your brother as you love yourself. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge. There's only one who knows the heart of another person. There's only one who's able to save and destroy but you are, so who are you to judge your neighbor? Um, two comments about that real fast. We've already talked about judging the law versus putting ourselves underneath it. When I judge my brother, I basically am saying that I know better than God does about this individual. Okay, that I'm better at being their parent than God is at being their parent. Okay, um, some people God created to be a thorn in my flesh. I can name a few of them. No, okay. Some people, yeah. Hi, Christine. Yeah, no. Some people God created to be a thorn in my flesh. She's waving to me back in the back, okay? All right. God did it for me. See? You know, um, iron sharpens iron, right? When, when I judge another, I basically say, I know better than God this person's purpose and the way they should behave and who they should be. We do it all over the place, okay? Um, you know, sometimes we, we do it under lots of different masks. Sometimes we do it under the mask of, of gifting or, or mission or something. I mean, you know, some people um, are called to mission and some people are called to be Sunday school teachers, Okay? If I'm called to be a Sunday school teacher, I need to be a Sunday school teacher. If I'm called a mission, I need to go be a missionary. But I am not supposed to think that just staying at home being a Sunday school teacher is worse than being a missionary. Okay? God created us each with a unique place in the body. The real issue is what verse 17 talks about. Am I doing what God called me to do. See, you boast, if anyone 
who knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it. For them, it's a sin. See? What James comes around to is saying is rather than judging you, I need to do what I am called to do. See? It's not just about what I these don't do big sin things over here. It's that I do do the loving good that I'm called to do. See? Um, Now, having said that about a Sunday school teacher, um, let me say this. I can be a Sunday school teacher with the wrong motives. I can be a Sunday school teacher that says, look at me. Okay. So again, it kind of goes back to motives. And that part in between Now listen, oh, I know that one of the dynamics when it comes to judging that hit me in our discussion with our leaders. It is, sometimes we are called to go to a brother or sister and say, I think you have this wrong. That only comes after a lot of prayer. Jesus tells us that when we see our brother doing something or our sister doing something they shouldn't be doing, we should go to them. Not after I ask my small group to pray for me while I go to them and tell them what's wrong. I'm going to go to Barb today and um, confront her on some things that she's doing, so will you pray for me? Wrong. It says, you go to Barb, you go to your brother one-on-one after a lot of prayer. Okay. But here's the point that I think really hit me in our small group today. All too often we use the law as a means of judging somebody. It says you should not do this and you're doing it. You are a horrible, awful person outside of God. You are a sinner. Where did Jesus hang out? With sinners. Do you think he went to Zacchaeus and said, hey, by the way, Zacchaeus, before I come to dinner with you, we need to talk about your tax collecting? No. He went and loved on Zacchaeus. And in the process, the Holy Spirit worked on Zacchaeus' life. I need to use that law as a mirror for me, but I need to watch it when it comes to using it as a judge for another. But here's the piece that I would say. If you are ever to judge your brother, make sure first that you're willing to be like Jesus for them. What did Jesus do? Jesus died for them. So before you go and tell somebody what's wrong with them, make sure that you love them enough to die for them. There's a story about Louis XV that I was going to read. When he became king of France... He got sick at a young age and the whole nation prayed for him. There was such an outpouring of love and concern for this young king. See, there had, his father had been a tyrant and they put all their hope in the fact that Louis might be their savior. 30 years later, after Louis got well and kind of had a life of being king, 
He got sick and died. Nobody mourned. You know why? Louis never did anything. See? It's not just what we don't do. We're also called to do. But in the process, over and over over again, the overarching thing is that this life does not center around me. It centers around God. If I wake up today, it is a grace gift from God. And the response is, Lord, thank you for my life, for the life of my friends, for the life of my family. How do you want me to spend this day for you? And then to go out in the day and live it for him. But here's the deal. He makes it all about you. And you can trust that. Because as I give my life to him, he has already given his life to me. And he says, I can trust in his gifts and his provision. Let me pray. Lord, there is so much in here. Help us cipher it all through. And will you speak to just that one area in each one of our lives that we need to put the mirror up in front of us and respond to you in? Thank you. Thank you that we can trust you. Thank you for eternity. Thank you for Jesus. Lord, help us resist the lies of self-centeredness and the world and to live for you. To your praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a good morning.